Section 11 of Commentary on the Epistles of Paul the Apostle to the Corinthians, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Commentary on the Epistles of Paul the Apostle to the Corinthians, Volume 1, by John Calvin. Translated by Rev. John Pringle. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Verse 26. Behold your calling. As the mood of the Greek verb, philopata, is doubtful, and the indicative suits the context equally as well as the imperative, I leave it to the reader's choice, which of them he may prefer. The meaning is manifestly the same in either case, for supposing it to be in the indicative, ye see, he would in that case summon them as witnesses, as of a thing that is manifest, and call them forward as it were to a thing that is present. On the other hand, Understanding it in the imperative, he stirs them up, as it were, from their drowsiness to a consideration of the matter itself. The term calling may be taken in a collective sense to mean the multitude of those that are called, in this sense. Ye see what description of persons they are among you that the Lord has called. I am, however, rather inclined to think that he points out the manner of their calling, and it is a most forcible argument because it follows from this that, if they despise the abasement of the cross, they in a manner make void their calling, in which God had acted in such a manner as to take away all merit from human wisdom and power and glory. Hence he tacitly accuses them of ingratitude, because, forgetful alike of God's grace and of themselves, they regard the gospel of Christ with disdain. Two things, however, must be observed here that he was desirous from the example of the Corinthians to confirm the truth of what he had said, and further, that he designed to admonish them that they must be entirely divested of pride if they duly considered the order of things that the Lord had observed in their calling. To put to shame, says he, the wise and noble, and to bring to naught things that are. Both expressions are appropriate, for fortitude and wisdom vanish when they are put to shame, but what has an existence requires to be brought to naught. By the choosing of the poor, and the foolish, and the ignoble, he means that God has preferred them before the great, and the wise and the noble. For it would not have sufficed for beating down the arrogance of the flesh if God had placed them all upon a level. Hence, those who appeared to excel he put in the background, in order that he might thoroughly abase them. That man, however, were an errant fool, who would infer from this that God has in this manner abased the glory of the flesh, 
in order that the great and noble might be shut out from the hope of salvation. There are some foolish persons that make this a pretext for not merely triumphing over the great, as if God had cast them off, but even despising them as far beneath them. Let us, however, bear in mind that this is said to the Corinthians, who, though they had no great distinction in the world, were nevertheless, even without any occasion, puffed up. God, therefore, by confounding the mighty, and the wise, and the great, does not design to elate with pride the weak, the illiterate, and the abject, but brings down all of them together to one level. Let those, therefore, that are contemptible in the eyes of the world, think thus with themselves. What modesty is called for on our part, when even those that have high honor in the view of the world have nothing left to them? If the effulgence of the sun is obscured, what must become of the stars? If the light of the stars is extinguished, what must become of opaque objects? The design of these observations is that those who have been called by the Lord, while of no estimation in the view of the world, may not abuse these words of Paul by pluming their crests, but, on the contrary, keeping in mind the exhortation, Thou standest by faith, be not high-minded, but fear, Romans chapter 11, verse 20, may walk thoughtfully in the sight of God with fear and humility. Paul, however, does not say here that there are none of the noble and mighty that have been called by God, but that there are few. He states the design of this, that the Lord might bring down the glory of the flesh by preferring the contemptible before the great. God himself, however, by the mouth of David, exhorts kings to embrace Christ, Psalm chapter 2, verse 12. And by the mouth of Paul, too, he declares that he will have all men to be saved, and that his Christ is offered alike to small and great, alike to kings and their subjects. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. He has himself furnished a token of this. Shepherds, in the first place, are called to Christ. Then afterwards come philosophers. Illiterate and despised fishermen hold the highest rank of honor, yet into their school there are received in process of time kings and their counselors, senators and orators. Verse 28. Things that are not. He makes use of similar terms in Romans chapter 4 verse 17, but in a different sense. For in that passage, when describing the universal call of the pious, he says that we are nothing previously to our being called, which must be understood as referring to reality in the sight of God, however we may appear to be something in the eyes of men. Here, the nothingless, Othenia, of which he speaks, must be viewed as referring to the opinion of men, as is manifest from the corresponding clause, in which he says that this is done in order that the things that are may be brought to naught. For there is nothing except in appearance, because in reality we are all nothing. Things that are, therefore, you must explain to mean things that appear, so that this passage corresponds with such statements as these, He raiseth up the poor out of the dunghill. Psalm 113, verse 7. He raiseth up them that are cast down. Psalm 146, verse 8 and the like. Hence we may clearly see how great is the folly of those who imagine that there is in mankind some degree of merit or worthiness which would hold a place antecedent to God's choice. Verse 29. That no flesh should glory. 
Though the term flesh here, and in many passages of Scripture, denotes all mankind, yet in this passage it carries with it a particular idea. For the Spirit, by speaking of mankind in terms of contempt, beats down their pride, as in Isaiah chapter 31 verse 3. The Egyptian is flesh and not spirit. It is a sentiment that is worthy to be kept in remembrance, that there is nothing left us in which we may justly glory. With this view he adds the expression, in God's presence. For in the presence of the world many delight themselves for the moment in a false glorying, which, however, quickly vanishes like smoke. At the same time, by this expression, all mankind are put to silence when they come into the presence of God, as Habakkuk says, let all flesh keep silence before God. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 20. Let everything, therefore, that is at all deserving of praise, be recognized as proceeding from God. Verse 30. Of him ye are. Lest they should think that any of those things that he had said were inapplicable to them, he now shows the application of those things to them, inasmuch as they are not otherwise than of God. For the words, ye are, are emphatic, as though he had said, You have your beginning from God, who calleth those things which are not, Romans chapter 4, verse 17, passing by those things that appear to be. And your substance is founded upon Christ, and thus you have no occasion to be proud. Nor is it of creation merely that he speaks, but of that spiritual existence into which we are born again by the grace of God. Who of God is made unto us? As there are many to be found who, while not avowedly inclined to draw back from God, do nevertheless seek something apart from Christ, as if he alone did not contain all things in himself, he reckons up in passing what and how great are the treasures with which Christ is furnished, and in such a way as to intimate at the same time what is the manner of subsistence in Christ. For when he calls Christ our righteousness, a corresponding idea must be understood, that in us there is nothing but sin, and so as to the other terms. Now he ascribes here to Christ four commendatory titles that include his entire excellence and every benefit that we receive from him. In the first place, he says that he is made unto us wisdom, by which he means that we obtain in him an absolute perfection of wisdom, inasmuch as the Father has fully revealed himself to us in him, that we may not desire to know anything besides him. There is a similar passage in Colossians chapter 2 verse 3, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Of this we shall have occasion to speak afterwards, when we come to the next chapter. Secondly, he says that he is made unto us righteousness, by which he means that we are on his account acceptable to God, inasmuch as he expatiated our sins by his death, and his obedience is imputed to us for righteousness. For, as the righteousness of faith consists in remission of sins and a gracious acceptance, we obtain both through Christ. Thirdly, he calls him our sanctification, by which he means that we who are otherwise unholy by nature are by his Spirit renewed unto holiness, that we may serve God. From this also we infer that we cannot be justified freely through faith alone without at the same time living holily. For these fruits of grace are connected together, as it were, by an indissoluble tie, 
so that he who attempts to sever them does in a manner tear christ in pieces let therefore the man who seeks to be justified through christ by god's unmerited goodness consider that this cannot be attained without his taking him at the same time for sanctification or in other words being renewed to innocence and purity of life those however that slander us as if by preaching a free justification through faith we called men off from good works are amply refuted from this passage which intimates that faith apprehends in christ regeneration equally with forgiveness of sins observe on the other hand that these two offices of christ are conjoined in such a manner as to be notwithstanding distinguished from each other what therefore paul here expressly distinguishes it is not allowable mistakenly to confound fourth he teaches us that he is given to us for redemption by which he means that through his goodness we are delivered at once from all bondage to sin and from all the misery that flows from it thus redemption is the first gift of christ that is begun in us and the last that is completed for the commencement of salvation consists in our being drawn out of the labyrinth of sin and death yet in the meantime until the final day of the resurrection we groan with desire for redemption as we read in romans chapter eight verse twenty three if it is asked in what way christ is given to us for redemption i answer because he has made himself a ransom in fine of all the blessings that are here enumerated we must seek in christ not the half or merely a part but the entire completion for paul does not say that he has been given to us by way of filling up or eking out righteousness holiness wisdom and redemption but assigns to him exclusively the entire accomplishment of the whole now as you will scarcely meet with another passage of scripture that more distinctly marks out all the offices of christ you may also understand from it very clearly the nature and efficacy of faith for as christ is the proper object of faith everyone knows what are the benefits that christ confers upon us is at the same time taught to understand what faith is verse thirty one he that glorieth let him glory in the lord mark the end that god has in view in bestowing all things upon us in christ that we may not claim any merit to ourselves but may give him all the praise for god does not despoil with the view of leaving us bare but forthwith clothes us with his glory yet on this condition that whenever we would glory we must go out of ourselves in short man brought to nothing in his own estimation and acknowledging that there is nothing good anywhere but in god alone must renounce all desire for his own glory and with all his might aspire and aim at the glory of god exclusively this is also more clearly apparent from the context in the writings of the prophet from whom paul has borrowed this testimony for in that passage the lord after stripping all mankind of glory in respect of strength wisdom and riches commands us to glory only in knowing him jeremiah chapter nine verses twenty three and twenty four now he would have us know him in such a way as to know that it is he that exercises judgment righteousness and mercy for this knowledge produces in us at once confidence in him and fear of him if therefore a man has his mind regulated in such a manner that claiming no merit to himself he desires that god alone be exalted 
if he rests with satisfaction on his grace and places his entire happiness in his fatherly love and in fine is satisfied with god alone that man truly glories in the lord i say truly for even hypocrites on false grounds glory in him as paul declares romans chapter 2 verse 17 when being either puffed up with his gifts or elated with a base confidence in the flesh or abusing his word they nevertheless take his name upon them. End of section 11